This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Fatima Bhutto, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Um, it's it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. And I know that you've just come off a plane, so I thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking remarkably wonderful for somebody who's jet lagged. Oh, that's all makeup. <laughs> I hope I sound wonderful for someone who's jet lagged. Yeah. Um, so I'll introduce, for those that don't know you, um, we've got an introduction here. Mm-hmm. Internationally acclaimed poetess and writer. You were born in Afghanistan and grew up in Syria and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fatima studied at Columbia University and the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Uh, Her work has appeared in The Guardian, Vogue and New Statesman, among other other publications. And she has also written five books, including the award-winning The Shadow of the Crescent Moon. Fatima's latest novel is The Runaways, a deeply compelling novel set in Karachi in Pakistan. It follows three very different young people whose lives cross in the desert, a place where life and death walk hand in hand and where their closely guarded secrets will force them to make a terrible, terrible choice. I'm getting a bit emotional because I only just finished (laughs) reading it last night. Um, It's a deeply, deeply... Uh, sad book, but also um, beautifully written and where you have found humanity mm-hmm. in something that is so unhumane. Mm. I think that's the role of a writer is to go into the spots that we don't want to look through um, and also maybe that are uncomfortable to explore because, of course, there's humanity in everything. It is, it, it is an uncomfortable book, but also, too, um, what struck me is that it's also a love story. Yes, yes, that's right. It's, it's a book ostensibly about radicalism and about the radicalized, but in exploring what it is that people don't know about the radicalized, I think you discover ordinary sorrows and relatable joys and love stories and losses and things that are really widely shared amongst all of us, even if radicalism is something foreign. Yeah, and and fearful and something we're really scared of. I mean, for me, it was just the human side of that and the choices that people make and, you know, how easily it is to walk into trouble, really. I think that the, the, the biggest misconception about radicalism is that it's something that kind of appears like a rash or a fever or 
Well, that you know, you you kind of have some kind of mental instability, and That's you're, it. you know, you're always destined to be there. But none yeah. of these characters were destined. No, but I don't think they are. I think that again, the narrative about radicalism has been so shallow. Mm. It basically says, oh well, don't worry, it affects only this group of people, and they're vulnerable because they're from this religion. Don't worry mm. about it. Mm. But in fact, it's not true actually, because what feeds Radicalism, what feeds young people into radicalism is not religion. It's things like loneliness and isolation and humiliation. And, and feeling displaced. And feeling displaced, absolutely. Mm. And I think so many more people are vulnerable to that. Mm. And the thing that got me thinking about this novel, um, wanting to write it, was what does that feel like? How much mm. pain would you have to be in to make that kind of a decision? Um, or to be swayed or to be, you know, yeah. pushed in that direction. Because often they're not clear-cut decisions either. No. It's not like you wake up one morning and that's what I'm going to do. No. It's a path of destruction, isn't it? Absolutely. I keep saying that it's it's about a lifetime of wounds and a lifetime of mm. humiliations that mm. eventually pushes you so far away from your friends and your family and your community and any safe, safe space. Um, that leads you to the point where you might be willing to take up arms against the world, mm. not just your city or your country, but really the universe around you. And very often, um, and, and in this book too, there are characters really that don't even know why. Mm. They don't They don't even understand the so-called cause. I, I don't think they do. I think most of them don't. You know, even if we look at the news and we, we look at a lot of the young mm. people we're seeing in the news... You know, the Those key, that wanting to come home. The, exactly, like Shamima Begum, I think, mm. is a really interesting and important case for people to, to really study because by her own admission, she was not religious. She she became religious in this really kind of Chinese whispery way before going. Mm. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that she read or studied or learned about Islam, mm. let's say. But someone told her something that seemed interesting to her and, mm. well, that was it. Now she's religious. Do you know, I couldn't help while reading it, likening it to even just, you know, other religions. I mean, I, I don't know if this happens all over the world, but mm. Scientology, for example, mm -hmm. is a religion that really preys on people mm. that... Mm. You know, if you can call it a religion, whatever it is, mm. but they target people that are feeling mm. isolated. You know, they know how to pick them. They know how, to, and and you know, well, the crime there is that they take all their money, yeah. um, and yeah. they they. It's the same kind of process in a way, isn't it? I think it's grooming. And, it's grooming. And that grooming, uh, you know, is whether it's a, a, an elder person trying to groom a younger person, yeah. um, whether it's a sort of cult yeah. trying to bring in money or followers. Yeah. And I think that the thing with radicals, especially if we're looking at Daesh or, you know, or, or as they're called, I guess, in the West, ISIS, um, is that their idea is actually pretty modern. So what they're appealing to is those people who feel displaced and alone and excluded from society. And what it says to them is, look, we have this kind of borderless world uh, where you will be free, nobody will impede you. Yeah. And, you know, you feel excluded there? Well, guess what? Here you will be not just included, but you will have power un unlike yeah. anything you've ever seen before. So it's not really a religious grooming. It's yeah. a grooming for people really on the fringes, people yeah. on the periphery, people with nothing to lose. Mm, I agree. And and you know those people are they're younger and younger yeah they're from all over the world and yeah. it's i think it's a, a disservice 
to imagine that this exists far away. It exists all around us. Mm-hmm. All around us. Okay, I want to start with you mm-hmm. um, and your career, your stellar career, mm-hmm. I might add. Um, I was astounded at the body of work and how young you are. And then I thought, well, she probably doesn't sleep much. Um, but also what I was astounded at is that you could have not done any of this either. You came yeah. from a life of privilege yeah. um, and you really didn't have to be, you know, a social commentator or a troublemaker or whatever it is, however yeah. people describe you. And you could have had a really safe wealthy, affluent life, couldn't yeah. you? Safe, I don't know. But, but yeah. yeah. But you chose but something. comfortable, yes. Yeah, you chose something very different. Tell me where it all started, where the writing began. It really began when I was a very young child. I was raised by a single father and he used to tell me stories and mm. he took me to the library when I was very young and opened this world up to me. Um, you know, we were living in Syria at the time, in exile from Pakistan. And books were a way of connecting to something far beyond the neighborhood I lived in. Mm. And it connected to this repository of my father's suffering and his life, because at that time, Pakistan was ruled by dictatorship. There was an incredible oppression in Pakistan and books and stories were a way of remembering something beautiful Mm. something before the sadness and the sorrow and the danger and so I began really to be interested in stories then and I was sort of an irritating child I guess I used to interview my father's friends when they would come over and (laughs) write them stories And then wait while they read them in front of me. And <laughs> some kids do pantomime, some kids do dances, but you did stories. I did stories, yeah. and 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 it was a way, I guess, you know, of 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 trying to understand where I was and and the world around me. Because it was unusual where you were. It was unusual. There were difficult circumstances. Talk to yeah. me about that. Did you understand it as a child? I did. I was I was sort of treated like an adult. So my father's uh, father had been. Uh, was the first democratically elected head of state in Pakistan. And he had been um, deposed by a a military coup and hanged um, by a military dictator. And then my uncle, my father's younger brother, was was killed in violent circumstances just a few years later. And so my father and I were really alone at Mm. the time that I was growing up. It was the two of us. And I knew that something terrible had happened because I knew we didn't live in our country. And my father would talk to me about what had happened and also (laughs) was was quite clear that that danger hadn't passed. Mm. Um, You know, so I lived in this world that was quite frightening um, because nobody lied to me. They told me the truth all the time. And that's difficult Mm. when you're a kid. But at the same time, um, my father really enjoyed life and was very funny and interested in the world around him. So at the same time as he pointed out what was dangerous and scary, he pointed out what was wonderful mm. and hopeful. And so I had a bit of everything. And, and the stories, I guess, were a way of sometimes escaping mm. from what seemed fearful and sometimes recording. What is fearful? What is fearful? Mm. A bit of both. And I started writing, writing really um, once we had gone back to Pakistan and that danger just magnified because in Syria, actually we were safe. There were moments where things 
could have been dangerous or might have been dangerous, but really they were quite safe. And going back to Pakistan, um, suddenly we were really in the belly of the beast as such, and Karachi itself was... And why did you go back? Well, my father wanted to go back. He'd Mm -hmm. spent 16 years in exile, and Mm -hmm. he ran for um, elections. He was elected to, to be a member of parliament, and he went back. And It's in the blood. I guess it's in the blood, but he was also incredibly homesick. Yeah. So when I was growing up in Syria, I thought, great, I'm Syrian. Yeah. And my father was always reminding me, no, 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 you're not Syrian. Yeah. Oh, well, then what am I? You're Pakistani. Well, fine, but I don't live there. Yeah. So, you know, he, he was desperate to go home. And at the same time, he knew what that meant. It yeah. meant to fight these forces that had never really left mm-hmm. um, from the time his father and his brother were killed. And I started writing poetry for a school project. Um, and how old were you about when you started? Oh, gosh, I must have been about 12. Yeah, wow. And we had to do this project where we had to put together a little book of poetry. And I really enjoyed it. And writing poetry um, helped me understand and deal with the fear I felt in Pakistan, mm-hmm. which was overwhelming. It wasn't just personally what happens to my father, what happens to my family. But, you know, we we lived in a city where your school would get shot at and there would be riots and you couldn't Mm -hmm. go to school for two weeks. And so once the project was over, I kept writing and I showed my father some of the poems. I'd never really done poetry before. And he said, oh, you have to you have to collect these. Mm -hmm. You have to publish these. And before he was killed, he had helped me collect not only a little volume of poetry, but had written draft letters to publishers for me. Yeah. And we were preparing to do something with these poems when when he was killed outside mm. our home. Mm. I'm really sorry. Tell Thank me you. about your stepmother. I'm interested in her because my parents are Lebanese. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, my father remarried... Um, when you were in... When, when, he was, we, when we were in Syria. I thought so. Yeah. And he remarried a Lebanese woman... Who had a ballerina. Left, uh, yes, a ballerina who had left Lebanon after the um, civil war and the Israeli invasion, actually, she left uh, and moved to Lebanon, um, Syria. Sorry, I'm so jet-lagged. So, <laughs> so they were two people living away from their countries. I mean, she was obviously much closer to yeah. hers. And they got married when I was, I want to say, eight. Um, and, and yeah, so we... We used to visit Lebanon a lot. As Beautiful country. I love Lebanon. I think yeah. Be- Beirut is one of the most incredible Isn't cities it? in the world. It, it really is just, Amazing. It's just fantastic. Yeah. And then even after that, even as a grown-up, um, since the war in Syria, a lot of my friends have moved to Lebanon, and so I go back to see yeah. them. So Beirut has been a kind of constant for me. Yeah. Since growing up. Is she, where is she living now? She lives in Pakistan. Oh, she lives in Pakistan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. And was that formative for you to have a female role model at that time? How did that well, influence I, you, do you think? I always had female role models in a way, even though I never really felt I had a mother as such. Yeah. Um, because I was very close to my father's mother, my grandmother. Oh, yes. And my grandmother was a sort of earliest memory I have really of a mother and I was close to my aunts as well actually as a child but it sounds funny to say but my father was kind of mother and father both mm-hmm. even though he was 
quite a you know macho masculine he was also like my mom I mean he used to cut my hair yeah. do all the practical things <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know put bows in my hair and things like that before going to school so I, I don't know I, I always really felt in a way that mm-hmm. I kind of had two parents yeah. and I had a babysitter and I had a best friend and I yeah. had a I was really very lucky yeah growing up the yeah. way I did yeah how old were you when he died I was 14 years old. Again, formative. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, he never he never pretended otherwise. So, you know, the days before he was killed, we could see something was happening because they started to put police, armored cars, they started to put yeah. sort of, they looked like tanks, you know, armored vehicles around our house. And my father was a very vocal critic of the government, of their corruption, and, and of the law and order situation which had Mm. turned Karachi into a kind of killing field you had Mm. police encounters which Mm. were really extrajudicial killings happening all the time and I remember asking my father what's happening and and he said I think they're going he thought they were going to arrest him so he'd sort of packed a little bag and um and I had I had that contract from from the publishers who were going to do my my little book of poetry. Oh, so you'd already been accepted. To I'd be been published. accepted, but because I was underage, I needed a guardian signature. And so I said to my father, "You have to sign my contract now if they're going to arrest you." Yeah. <laughs> like get your priorities like a child, right. yeah, yeah, like a typical teenager. Right. <laughs> and he said, "I'll just put it in my bag. I'll, I'll do it in jail." Mm. And I I didn't really know what I thought was going to happen, but. I was just uncomfortable and I said, no, do it now. Mm. And he sort of thought I was overreacting, but he did sign it. Mm. And, and then eventually we changed the publisher because I wanted to publish it in Pakistan. Mm. So Oxford University Press did that book, but, but he, didn't, he, didn't really, he didn't really build a world of, um, of you know, sort of optimism when there wasn't any. He, mm. he, he gave it to us like it was. Talk to me about grief and being 14 mm. and being an only child and really just being an orphan. How do you find your way? Well, I had a, a younger brother at that time, but he was much younger. He was six years old. And, um, yeah, grief is an incredible force, mm. actually, because nothing prepares you for the force and momentum of grief, which is unyielding. Mm. And... I had grown up with this idea of danger always present, but at the same time, I had always been so hopeful that it wouldn't actually. I used to try and figure out an algorithm or an algebra, you know, that if there was this tragedy and this year and the next tragedy was five years later, but the third one was seven years later, what's the median range between how much time we have of peace? And you can't do that. There's no algebra for grief. And so when my father was killed, I I was I was sort of lost in 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 grief for many many years, mm. and it took a long time. You know, people don't people can't tell you either. Mm. Oh, it's one year, or you feel better when. Oh, I think it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime, and and actually, it took. I'm trying to think now. It was. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many years later, uh, I mean... I mean, more than 10 years later when I just somehow understood and it was a very weird shift. I kind of understood that actually as long as I was around, so was my father. Mm. And all these little things that I thought I couldn't do, like talk to him, I just started to do. Mm. And it, it changed. It changed the grief. And so it's not that I don't miss my father or I don't feel grief anymore. But you, you learn how to shape it. And your, how to live with it. Yeah, how, yeah. To, how to live with it, how to shape it. And I think Joan Didion mm -hmm. put it so well. I mean, it re really requires magical thinking. It does. And the moment you click onto that magical thinking, something alters for you. Mm. And so I was just, I mean, I was the longest flight ever. I can't even remember when it began. <laughs> but flying here, where was I? I was so, I can't remember where I was. This trip? On this trip. Yeah. I mean, it was on a plane, but I can't remember which part of the plane. <laughs> and what part of the world and you were And what in. part it was. But there was something, I saw something or I heard something. And it immediately brought back my father to me. It was a song, that was it. I heard a song uh, at an airport, just moving through an airport. It immediately brought back my father to me. And I really desperately at that moment wanted to tell him something. Yeah. And... You know, your old understanding of grief would say to you, well, you can't. But your new one says, oh, well, just tell him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I did in yeah. the middle of this airport. Yeah. Just talk to my father for two minutes. Absolutely. And then carry on with my day. Yeah. How do you think that that has affected your work? Well, I think it's actually affected it hugely in a sense because my, my feeling of fear um, and also my experience of violence makes me look for it in a lot of things so my my all my books have some element of that um and i know that i can see it while i'm doing it i can't i can't tell you right when i'm doing it why i'm drawn to it mm. but i am drawn to it mm. i i want to be unafraid mm. and i want i want to take away some of the the suffocation of violence and so i want to understand it and i want to know why people are violent and i want to know how people survive violence violence so I, I think you're bold in a way because you know a lot of people would have oh I know I, I mean I'm yeah. so scared of a lot of things that I think I just <laughs> would have curled up in a heap and gone to the safest place I could and probably I tried to too, live a very yeah. safe life I mean I'm scared too were you I, a naughty girl at school I really wasn't actually no. I was a typical <laughs> eldest child that was right. sort of okay. careful and cautious yeah. I wasn't naughty no I'm much more difficult now than I was yeah. when I was growing up. Yeah. I'm more difficult now because I guess the stakes are sort of different. And I know that if you play by the rules at this stage, then you're accepting a whole mm -hmm. 
all the level of power than you are when you are a teenager. Mm. But I am afraid, and I think that's part of what my experience of my life has taught me, at least, or being Pakistani has taught me, that being afraid is part of the terrain. That's, you have to still go on with it, even when you're, especially when you're afraid. Mm. And, and you, you more than go on with it. You live it, you breathe it, you talk about it, and you keep, talk, you keep it in the public domain. And I think that's very important. I think it's the only power we have, really, is to be witnesses yeah. and, and to remember and to archive and to pay tribute and to celebrate. It's not always a sad thing. It's no. not always a sorrowful thing. Sometimes yeah. it is a, a celebration um, or a remembrance in a, in a positive way. But I do think that's really the, the sum of our powers. Um, and the moment we, we hand that away, we give up something... Um, of not just ourselves, but, I don't know, our communities, yeah. our societies, yeah. our families. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the global environment in mm. the moment. I mean, in the past, for me anyhow, Australia feels like a very safe place and mm. I've always felt very protected. I've seen war in, mm. in just in visiting mm. Lebanon mm -hmm. and visiting my family over there, So, I, but I haven't experienced it firsthand. I've mm. just seen it from a distance. And, you know, I'm such a scaredy cat. I was in a cafe in in, in, in um, northern Lebanon and I heard a bomb, like, from hundreds of kilometres away, but at that point I needed to pack my bags and come home. In and Tripoli? No, it was Skarter, okay. which is just near Tripoli. Okay. It's an hour out of Tripoli. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm terrible, you know. But that's because we've lacked the experience mm -hmm. here, you know, and, and that's great. However, I do feel that we have always thought that those areas of concern or, or unrest have belonged to another world and mm -hmm. not ours. Mm -hmm. But I think they're coming closer and closer. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it has anything to do with Islam. No. No. I think you're right. It is coming closer and closer and it doesn't have anything to do with Islam. No, it doesn't. At all. Look um, at the unrest that's happening in the US. I mean, you know. Completely. Uh, completely. Like, um, and then what's happening in the UK and... You know, we've got a collection, an election coming up. There's, yeah. um, there's a, uh, you know, there's a. I don't know how to describe it, but it's, and you'll probably um, uh, describe it better than me. But there, there is an unrest in even the affluence that we live in. Oh, isn't I, there? I, absolutely, because there's something so profoundly unjust about how much. That's right. Some people, a minority have. That's right. And how little everybody else has. Yeah. And you see it, I mean, you see it everywhere. You see it going through an airport and it's just luxury goods, you know. It's crazy. You see it on the street where people are, you know, begging and other yeah. people are having, you know, these yeah. sumptuous meals. And you see it on the internet. The internet is, mm. is like a, a microscope, isn't it? You know, mm. of this sort of curation of, of this privileged... Um, kind of ugly life that mm. so few people have mm. um, which is all about having mm. not giving or sharing um, and that in conflict with the news with what we see when we open up a paper is you can't you can't it's untenable you can't mm. really abide by it so why do you think it's now why why do you think we've got somebody like um you know the Trump mm -hmm. that we have in the US. Mm -hmm. Why do we think we've got Brexit, mm -hmm. um, and we've got these un uh, pockets of uncertainty everywhere in France? Yeah. You know, the yellow vest. So it's just yeah. happening everywhere. Why do you think it's now? Well, I think in some ways 
we know so much more. You know, we're so hyper connected today mm. that you you could keep a story down before, but you could keep it down for a month or a week mm. or you know a couple of months. Mm. You can't keep it down for an hour now. You know, we no. just have immediate access. I think at the same time, globalization, which was so promising and was so exciting, has obviously been exposed as a lie because it didn't lift all boats on the rising tide. It made a, a, a minority that was already wealthy and privileged, wildly wealthy and privileged. Crazy wealthy. Crazy wealthy. And it took everyone else, you know, out of let's say, small towns or, or rural environments, brought them to the big city and then just abandoned them. Mm-hmm. And they were not given the support that the they need yeah. or the opportunity, but they were thrown in conflict with this world of kind of, you know, unusual depravity. It's a material depravity, a sexual mm-hmm. depravity, an economic depravity. Um, and that creates a lot of anger, I think. Mm-hmm. And obviously you have these politicians who take advantage, like Trump, um, of, of that unrest and of that tension. Mm-hmm. And then you just have, I think, a system that wants to keep it going. You mentioned France. Look at the yellow vests in France. The, the gilets jaunes were on the streets for a month. I mean, they didn't even get anything out of, out of their protest. But Notre Dame burns, mm-hmm. and overnight you have 200 million euros pledged. I mean, now it's something like 800 million euros have been pledged. Um, but that's a building. There's a bricks. Mm-hmm. And of course, one values history and one values sacred spaces. But when people are on the streets telling you they can't afford to feed their families and you give mm-hmm. them nothing, and a building burns, mm-hmm. and you give it $200 million overnight, mm-hmm. what does that mean? You know, what does that say to the majority of the world's poor and dispossessed? I um I saw something. Um, it was an American congresswoman um, in one of those hearings, of which I've never really been able to understand the value of them. But anyway, mm. she gave an example of a teller. She was interviewing. She was, you know, the uh, it was the CEO of a big bank. I mm. think it was Chase or something. I can't remember. And one of his, this is what tellers own in the US. And when she did the math, mm. the budget of the week, this woman was out $500 every week. She was short $500 mm. just to live, basically. Yeah. And that's just food, you know, yeah. um, a, a roof over her head, whatever. Mm. And here is this man, and I can't remember what the salary was, but let's say it was yeah. $50 million a year. Yeah. And that is, that's the gap, isn't it? It's you know? enormous. And we're paying them more and more. Yeah, I mean, look yeah. at Di- the Disney CEO. Oh, yes, I read I mean, about that. 60, who needs that kind of money? Exactly. What do you do with that? It's crazy, isn't it? What it's to abs- do with that? Yeah. And then you also see, at the same time, you know, the, the money spent on wars. Mm-hmm. You know, the U.S. spends $32 million an hour, mm-hmm. an hour on the war on terror. Yeah. But you have, you have, you know, one child dies every 12 minutes in Yemen. Mm-hmm. And what does that say to not just the people of Yemen, but the people of Africa, of the Middle East, let's say a Muslim we don't care community. About we you. don't care. We have money. Yeah. We just don't care about you. Yeah. So we'll spend it on the Disney CEO, yeah. we'll spend it on a building we like, we'll spend it on making yeah. ourselves yeah. you know, stronger and more ferocious and more wealthy. But we don't really care that, you know, women don't have safe places to yeah. leave their children yeah. or a large portion of the world doesn't have drinkable water. Yeah. And I think that, that that is caught like a flame all yeah. over the world, you yeah. know. I want to talk to you about Me Too. Mm. Mm. Talk to me about that because um, it's interesting, I think, in 
the, the, in, in what's happening in the women's movement. Yeah. But it's it's kind of a contrast, really, yeah. to societies, well, Islamic societies, for instance. And do you think the Me Too movement is having an impact on that? Well, I think on one level, just to have a conversation about something, even if, let's say the conversation is limited or it's flawed is still important yeah. and because it says it says that there's a space to talk about these issues and so I do think in that sense it has had an impact um, you know we see it in Pakistan too there have been certain cases that have come out in the open and they might not have had there not been a global conversation about me too but I still think that it's very limited um, in the sense that I don't think women feel safer and I'm not sure the conversation is really advancing any particular ideas for, for women. I mean, we don't talk about, for example, in the, case, the famous Hollywood cases, about how many women were implicated um, in, in the predation of these powerful men yeah. because they had secretaries or they had assistants who were women who helped them. We don't talk about that. You know, we don't talk about what you're supposed to tell a young woman. You're supposed to tell her if somebody tries to hurt you, you go immediately to the police. I mean, why, I haven't really seen that. You know, we've, we've heard a lot of the stories and it's, it's true. And it's yeah. important to yes. talk about the stories. Yeah. But why are we not telling women, forget the job, forget the role, forget the shame, forget everything, go to the police? Yeah. We're not saying that. No. And, and so, we're using different language as well. Yes. Yes, We're using sure. different language around it. Sometimes I have to read an article two or three times to, to find understand. out yeah, yeah. what's happened. And I think also one of the things, I was at a conference in um, the Netherlands uh, last year and it was this gathering of quite young people and they were talking about, you know, this sort of young leadership issues, you know, whether it's microfinance or health. Or, yeah. And so there was, a, there was a session on sexual violence and I was a part of moderating that that conversation and these incredibly brave young people were talking about their experiences and the work they'd done and people came up afterwards from the audience and said to me you know you should have had a trigger warning and I thought what do you mean oh, first of all I didn't really know what it meant right. <laughs> so I was like what <laughs> what does that I. mean yeah. and they said well you know I felt and this is this new language um, mm -hmm. you know I felt triggered because it really uh, upset me to hear right. And so I, th I, was li I listened to some of these comments and I said to them afterwards, well, the panel was called Young Leaders Against Sexual Violence. That's, that's, a trigger. that's as much of a trigger as we can give yeah. you, really. Yeah. But I said, at the second time, what I would want to say to young people um, is that you, 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 know, you can't have a warning for everything. We have to face these things head on and we have to face them mm -hmm. because they bother us and because they hurt us. We are obliged to, to, to confront them and you know things like trigger warning I feel like they obscure mm -hmm. uncomfortable conversations sometimes or they allow people to check out of conversations that really are difficult but, but are important mm -hmm. so I'm not sure Me Too has reached the point where we can really celebrate it um, mm -hmm. and feel that something positive has mm -hmm. been established for women I also feel like the conversation is kind of an elite conversation still Mm. You know, we don't talk about women working in hotels and factories and rural environments and production line, yeah, production lines who face sexual assault, you know, mm. on an hourly basis or verbal abuse. And, Absolutely, and yeah. they don't have the security or the safety to quit the job, you know. Mm. Um, 
so we haven't really heard those stories, and I'm I'm interested in those stories, but I haven't I haven't seen them in the public mm. sphere as much. Mm. And do those conversations do they flow on to places like Pakistan? Yeah, they, they do, do. They do. I mean, there's a big conversation right now. Again, it comes from an elite. Yes. Vantage point. The same way it has in the West, because yeah. in the West it's been about Hollywood. Mm. I mean, they were literally the most wealthy, secure, pampered, mm. you know, powerful people we can think of, mm. second to, you know, statesmen. Mm. So in in Pakistan, it, it has been part of the conversation too. There's um, there's it's it in the music industry and the entertainment industry, yeah. stories come out, and that um, again, it's limited to this small minority of people mm. so we're not really talking about how it affects women who work um in the childcare industry as domestic mm. help in mm. people's homes absolutely women who are in the industry yeah. absolutely yeah. and um and you know we have a lot of laws in pakistan that disadvantage women that that you know criminalize victims of sexual assault rather than the perpetrators yeah. so it, it hasn't gone that far yet yeah. but but it's still a conversation, I think. Oh, that's yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, okay, so, I, you know, you're still very young and you've still got, <laughs> a, you know, a huge life ahead of you. Is it writing fiction that is your passion? Where where does your passion lie? Because you're very good at it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I always loved writing, but fiction is, is for me, so liberating. It is. It's so much harder it's more challenging and it is like working in the dark in a lot of ways because you don't have the signposts you have with nonfiction. Um, you don't really know what you've got till it's done. And even when it's done, it's not done. It needs so much more editing yeah. and work and rewriting. But I love it. Yeah. Um, I was with some friends the other day and somebody in the group said, a male said, oh, yeah, I don't write, I don't read fiction. I'm only interested in nonfiction. And I said, well, you mustn't be reading the fiction that I'm reading. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, you know, you get so much more across. Absolutely. I always say fiction, it, you know, novels are Trojan horses. Absolutely. You know, if you write a non-fiction book about radicalism, only people who are interested in radicalism will go there. Yeah. But a novel, you know. You're taking you, people to places. Yeah. The, you, know. you, you pack it with all kinds of dangerous ideas that people mm. won't even know they're going to mm. they're going to come to. I mean, I say this, my next book is non-fiction. <laughs> but, um, but the one after that, I hope, will be... Will be fiction. I hope so. You know, Fatima, thank you so much. It's just really been an absolute pleasure and honour to have you in here today. Pleasure is all mine. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.